You're listening to There Ought to Be a Law, the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by me, Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has worked to make cars safer. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> or good afternoon, good night, good evening, whatever they say in the Truman Show. Welcome, listeners, to another exciting episode of What Happens to IVs When They're Let Loose on the Road and Will My Airbag Explode? Hey, that kind of rhymed. Look at that. Wow. Two cups of coffee will do that to you. Uh, let's uh, let's start off this week with the ARC airbag saga. How about we just do that? Because I think we have a lot of things to discuss on that because a lot of it is confusing to, you know, average people, technical people, uh, people on this podcast, namely uh, me. So quick recap. This is... Uh, airbags that uh, that NHTSA investigated for about eight years and after eight years of an investigation which is a record I believe in the NHTSA timeline uh in that universe uh it, it's they, close it's not a clear record <laughs> well it's definitely up there uh they said hey uh these things are a problem it looks like arc automotive they might have like left a little flux or something like that in the propellant so when you do get into an accident the airbag will release this propellant will also kind of explode in your face which isn't great and yeah basically there's wet weld welding slag that's left over during the process of assembling the inflator and that slag that's produced they use friction welding so basically they're using the power of friction to join similar metals together and what what happens when you do that the heat will produce some basically it's the uh, the garbage that's left over at the end of a friction welding procedure that needs to be cleared out of the inflator and what's happening is they're not getting it all out it's remaining in the inflator and then when the actual airbag deploys in a crash there the theory is that it's clogging the orifice in the inflator, which effectively gives nowhere for any of that pressure to go. And it, it turns into a, a bomb right in front of a passenger. Um, and, and even when it doesn't turn into a, you know, a, a mini explosive device, it's also causing poor deployments. So a bad deployment is going to allow for increased injuries and crashes. So that's that's the other side of this one. That's that's a little different than Takata. Um, the other big difference from Takata is that this is not necessarily a design defect, but it's a manufacturing defect. You know, not all of the airbags on the road have this problem that ARC has made. Whereas in Takata, all of the airbags were degrading and subject to that condition at some point. Um, so there's there's some pretty key differences between the two. I want to explain uh, the welding technique just for a second. You can imagine if you take something, take a stick. Well, you remember the Boy Scout trick of starting a fire with a stick, right? Because you, you take a stick and you grind it into another stick, and the, the heat of that grinding event causes eventually causes the chips to catch on fire. That's a lot like what friction welding is, except with metal instead of uh, wood. So you grind one into another, and the heat of that grinding 
causes the two uh, pieces of metal to fuse. I want to just, the reason I bring that up is because that's not the only way to connect two pieces of metal. You can do something called electron beam welding, which occurs in a vacuum using an intense beam of electrons, hence the name, uh, the, to heat up the local area. It's much cleaner, much better way of doing things. Things like implantable electronics that are used in medicine are usually electron beam welded because it is very effective and it's very clean. The reason for using friction welding instead of electron beam welding is exclusively an economic decision. So once again, a decision is being made for the bottom line that affects safety, uh, degrade safety. So we'll talk a lot more about this later on, about what these uh, trade-offs are all about. But I just wanted to bring that up that, you know, there are choices that can be made, ARC, tended to make the choice that produced the most hazard and uh, was the least cost. So, again, this is not like the Takata. The Takatas, if you have one of those faulty airbags, you don't have to get into a car accident. It will just explode in your face eventually. Horrible. This, the you actually have to be in a situation where the airbag will deploy. Uh, and unfortunately, from uh, what we're seeing is from one of the NHTSA's acting associate administrator for enforcement says... The likelihood of a future inflator eruption is about one out of every 370,000 airbag deployments. So by airbag deployment, they mean you got into an accident, airbag inflated, correct? That's right. Okay. So out of every 370,000 accidents, situations where that happens, one of those will be a situation where, oh my God, why is my face hurt so much? Yeah. Or, oh my God, why did my airbag not deploy properly? And I'm, you know, my head hit the steering wheel or whatever, whatever happens in those situations. There's a, depending on the angle and the force of the crash, there's a lot of different scenarios that can take place. Or, oh my God, did I leave the iron on? Did I lock the garage door? Oh, I'm dead. Uh, just to be clear, I don't know how in the world I came up with those numbers. I tried to generate them myself and it, it seems really wrong because the reliability estimate that the ARC representative talked about in the hearing is way different than what uh, NHTSA was saying. So, again, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Okay. Well, we might uh, later might become sooner because uh, this is a confusing thing. So, uh, you know, different newspapers have had articles about this, and I love comment sections because it's where crazy goes to thrive. And so a lot of comments on this are like, yeah, whatever. It's dangerous to walk outside across the street. What do I care if this airbag's going to explode in my face? Whereas my argument is, hey, you know this product is defective. I'll replace it. I don't care if Arc Automotive goes out of business. Like that, I mean, I, you know, they, they sold a bad product that could potentially kill people. Even if it's out of one out of every 370,000, I don't, you know, that's better odds than me winning Powerball. By the way, if anyone is you know wants to share Powerball winnings, please let me know. Didn't uh, win, sorry. No, nobody has yet. Well, maybe by the time this comes out, I have won, and you'll never hear from me again. Well, I mean, that's the thing. When you buy a Powerball ticket, you're envisioning you know your future winnings and what you're going to do with them. When you buy a vehicle with an ARC airbag in it, first of all, you don't know if it's in there because the manufacturers haven't been clear about what vehicles have them, but... Second of all, you're not imagining all the horrible consequences that could take place. I, I don't think most people would be willing to take that risk of, you know, one in 370,000 is far better odds than winning winning this Powerball coming up next week. 
or tonight when is it <laughs> I, I don't know uh so okay so here's the thing is so nitsa have, have they put out a recall or a voluntary recall on this no they can't do that um the manufacturer has to do that which is why nitsa's making this determination because ultimately if they make a final determination um i believe that's going to happen they said comments were open to december so maybe december maybe maybe january if they make a final defect determination here um that's when a recall would have to happen the only real weird part about this whole situation is that arc is a tier one supplier they're sending these parts to manufacturers and it's the manufacturers technically and arguably legally that have to make this recall determination. Um, and they're, you know, about half of the manufacturers who have installed these airbags have seen no, no issues. They haven't seen the defect in their, in their fleet. So that's one of the really kind of problematic parts here is that you're you're asking a manufacturer that's had you know zero evidence of this defect occurring in their cars to to perform a you know a pretty costly recall. Um, so that's that's another complicating factor here. But what we found out also as part of the hearing is that it, it appears that most of the vehicles involved are general motors um we thought general motors had recalled a significant portion of their vehicles when they recalled about a million of them a few months back those were some of the vehicles that had um you know if you look at the incidents that are taking place in the united states four of the vehicles uh involved are general motors and we you know they recalled a million vehicles it looked at the though they had eliminated that portion of the problem but the wall street journal reported that there were as many or as 20 million or more general motors vehicles with these airbags in them which suggests that gm is the manufacturer that has the vast majority of these in in their vehicles so i mean the odds are if you own a general motors from from you know 2000 to the present it's got one of those earbags in it um so that's that's pretty interesting i mean they it's been cast as kind of oh this is similar to takata and that there's this massive group of manufacturers who all have these airbags but what it's looking more like is that the the vast majority of these of these inflators are in general motors vehicles and that some other manufacturers you know use some that were made by delphi or by other groups and um there aren't that many uh in these other populations that are that are really at risk we don't know yet because manufacturers aren't really coming out and telling the public you know who has what in their vehicles that's always nice to find out so from what we can tell the inflators were installed in vehicles from 12 automakers including ford gm stellantis hyundai tesla and toyota since the launch of the investigation in 2015, automakers, including BMW, Ford, GM, and Volkswagen, have initiated eight recalls to address potential safety defects with the inflators. So, uh, so the manufacturers, the, the car manufacturers, they're actually initiating these recalls yeah. prior to NHTSA saying anything. Um, well, <clears throat> they're initiating those recalls in response to uh inflator ruptures that have taken place in their cars um and they're doing it in small batches basically their argument is we're going to recall this batch of a thousand vehicles where we've seen one of these inflator incidents because that shows that 
on the date when this inflator was manufactured, they weren't cleaning out the weld slag out of their inflator inflators. Um, so the the defect could happen in that batch. Um, what NITS is contending is that you have there's no way to figure out which inflators have this problem right now. You can't go up to a car with an X-ray machine and figure it out. Um, so the only way to be sure that this problem doesn't continue is to recall all of them. So uh, the root source of this problem has got nothing to do with airbag inflator manufacturing. The root source of this problem is that NHTSA, as far as I know, is the only agency in the world that has specified the use of something called an electro-explosive device without also issuing a specification for how that electro-explosive device is to be made and quality control associated with it. That's the heart of the problem. Uh, the manufacturers like Takata and ARC are merely taking advantage of this bureaucratic lapse by NISA to maximize their own profits and saying, well, if NISA lets us build junk, we'll build junk. What's the problem with that? So, and the problem in the Takata situation, for instance, was the selection of ammonium nitrate as the propellant chemical for their formulations. And, you know, if if NHTSA years ago had said, hey, you can't use ammonium nitrate in these things. It's unstable. It poses a lot of risks. We know it's cheap. We know you guys want to use it, but it's just not going to work and put out a rule saying, hey, you can't use it. We never would have had Takata. Um well, I'm, I'm, let me let me argue with you just a little bit, Michael, because if there had been a specification issued that said you need to make sure that the inflators are going to last over their service lifetime, that there will be no ingress of water, that they'll be tested sufficiently so that you have high confidence these things are going to work. If that had been done, the ammonium nitrate would have been perfectly fine. So the problem wasn't the specification of ammonium nitrate. The problem was that NHTSA never required people to make sure that at the end of life, these things were still safe. That requirement is ordinarily built into specifications for electric explosive devices. Okay, and so- I, And I think the question there is, you know, too, I mean, we're saying that NHTSA should be able to come up with these rules in advance of auto manufacturers uh putting this stuff into cars and putting it out on the roads and the, the fact on the ground is NHTSA simply doesn't have the resources to make these kind of determinations they need them desperately they certainly need them now in software and cybersecurity. and in the past they haven't had them so it, it's it's a question of you know can the agency even address these types of things or are we going to continue to see you know what we've seen for the past 50 years which is manufacturers basically putting on the roads what they want and us reaping the consequences because there's not a truly effective you know overseer for this type of stuff right now they're putting all sorts of software into vehicles and there are no cybersecurity standards. In 10 years, we might be reaping the results of that in a similar way as we're reaping the results of the airbag problem uh, that we've seen with Takata and with ARC or ARC. Well, I don't think we'll have to wait 10 years with the automated vehicles uh, roaming the streets of the cities now in ever-increasing numbers. I, I think that that... Uh, 
come up. It's just going to come a lot more quickly. <laughs> Everything will not be better in the future. Is that what you're telling me? Well, I don't know. Future. I saw an ad for a Coca-Cola flavor that was designed by AI, so I'm super <laughs> intrigued. <laughs> <laughs> That's bound to be good. Yeah, it was followed by a diabetic uh, medicine ad. Uh, okay, so uh, there's a problem with these inflators. Uh, most manufacturers don't have any issues with them. GM, uh, unfortunately, they got stuck, and it seems like they've got a lot of these, and so they've already recalled a bunch of things. ARC's basically saying, nah, you can't tell us to do nothing. It's a you toothless, and they're you know waggling their tongue at them. Uh, and with that, I think I want to go into the Tao of Fred. How do we feel about the Tao of Fred right now? You've now entered the Tao of Fred. That's a little early, but uh, let's give it a whirl. Well, look, it's all it's all related. And when we go into the Tao of Fred, can I ask you to back off your microphone about a half an inch, just a little bit? You're getting a little clippy. I'm no longer that, eating the microphone. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you. All so. Right. So the, the Tao of Fred, we're going to continue with the ARC theme. And this is one of these things where, hey, math, not my strong point, but ARC claims 95% reliability in their product, and they are 99% confident in that. Now, again, not an expert in math, but that just sounds like a giant loophole. Well, you're right on with that. Yeah! It's, so uh, when you... Uh, well, first, let me ask you, have you ever watched a rocket launch on TV? Yeah. Okay, so, you know, there's a countdown, five, four, three, and then you see the cables fall away from the rocket, two, one, zero. Then there's a lot of flame and smoke, and then the thing rises into the air. Uh, then oh, it's Miko, burnout, right? And they separate the first stage from the second stage. Well, how does all that happen? All that happens because of something called an electro-explosive device. And when the cables fall away from the rocket, somebody has pushed a button somewhere, or a computer's pushed a button, that fires something called an electro-explosive device, also known as an explosive bolt, that on command breaks a mechanical connection and uh, causes this action to happen. Inside the motors of the of the rocket. Typically, there's another electric explosive device, very much like an airbag inflator, that will, again, on electrical command, uh, flash into flame and light the, the rocket engines, right? So then you see the smoke and coming out, and, and as it rises, they separate the first stage that's burned down from the second stage. Again, and more electric explosive devices that are in the rocket an electrical signal causes them to snap, and then they break a, the, whatever the connection is between the first and second stage, usually something called a marmon clamp, by the way, um, <laughs> that allows the, the the stages to separate and then it goes on about the business. So th these are common devices that are used a lot in aerospace. It's the same class of device that is the airbag inflator. So they've been made for a long time, and they're made with with uh, certain reliability standards. So the ARC representative said there's 95% reliability with 99% confidence. That sounds really impressive, but if you take it apart, what it means is that 95% response uh, reliability means that you should expect 5% of them to fail. And 99% confidence means that if you did that same test again, 
you have a 99% chance of getting the same result. So basically the 95% reliability is something you can expect to get over and over again if you were to test this over and over again. Okay, so that's what those two numbers mean. So so basically ARC is guaranteeing on the, the uh, faith of their company that 5% of these are going to fail. I don't know I, why that's not obvious to people. I but, don't want any of these things to fail in my car. Well, so if you think 5% are failing and you look at the millions that have been put out there, I don't know where in the world this NHTSA estimate of one in ga gazillion failures came from. Does it even sound like they got it correct? I mean, does it sound like they misspoke when they said 95%? I mean, even 99% and 99% sounds like there's still a lot of room for errors that could that could well, make, it sounds like it problematic. It sounds like the I, efficacy I, of birth control. Like, hey, this guy, is 95% effective. The gentleman who made that statement is either... Well, there's three possibilities. Number one is he's badly misinformed. Or number two, uh, <laughs> he really doesn't understand what the numbers are. Or number three, he was just trying to throw out some scientific -y numbers and you know put truthiness into the discussion because there was nobody there to challenge him. So uh, those are the three possibilities that and, I see. And what percent of confidence do you have with that? I have uh, in front of me, a document that talks about confidence for space qualified electric explosive devices. Ooh. So I'm dodging your answer specifically. <laughs> yeah, I see. Um, but okay, so let me ask you a question. What's more important, the safety of a of satellite that's going to be deploying something in space or the safety of a human being that's behind a steering wheel? I will vote for the human in space. Oh, wait, no, the human behind the airbag. Human behind the airbag. Well, is, is I mean, the what's satellite, the satellite got? If the satellite's what's deploying a technology that's going to save us all in the next month, then it, you know, it's more complicated, right? Could be, but you know, the there aren't a lot of satellites with that characteristic. But and so you're voting for the satellite, Michael, instead of the human being. No, I'm not, right. but I'm, I'm qualifying my answer depending on All what's right. on that satellite. There's, so you know. he thinks there's superpowers being deployed from that satellite. He doesn't understand how satellites work and what they well, are. I mean, so if be that satellite, episode. for instance, could detect every drunk driver on the road and shoot a beam that pops their tires or disables their vehicles, then, you know, I'm happy to die so that that can take place. All right. Well, I'm glad you're happy. ARC <laughs> has... Uh, ARC has clearly come down on the side of the satellite because they've been building these things for years. And the requirement for satellites, uh, which you can find with about three minutes of Googling, and uh, we'll, we'll put this link on our website for uh, interested people, is that the, let's see, the reliability of components shall be equal to or better than 0.999 with a confidence level equal to or better than 95%. So what they're saying is that they are requiring that less than one in 1,000 rather than five out of 100 will be allowed to fail. And that there's a confidence level of 95%, which means that if they did this test over and over again, 95 times out of 100 with this extensive test series, uh, they would come up with the same result. So uh, 
all right, blah, 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 a bunch of numbers. What does all that mean? Um, it looks like that ARC tested about 100 devices if there were no failures. Because with 100 device, with 100 trials and 100 successes, and Anthony forbids me from telling you what this distribution comes from. <laughs> you um, can go ahead. You can use the phrase once. I'm not. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's called a binomial distribution, but I can't say it again. All right. Okay, so good. with 100 trials and 100 successes, you can estimate 95% reliability with 99% confidence. This is what the gentleman from ARC was claiming. Now, if you want to use the standard that the European Space Agency uses, you need to have 500 trials with no more than one failure. Okay, so ARC is only doing, uh, apparently, based on what the information we've got at hand, ARC is only doing 20% of the testing for airbag inflators that will be used in millions and millions of vehicles compared with the 500, so they're only doing one-fifth as many tests for these airbag inflators as the industry would do, anyone in the industry would do for EEDs being used in satellites that would only be used tens of times. Okay, So you can talk about uh, the cost factor, of course, in this, and there is a cost associated with doing an extensive number of tests. But if you are able to amortize the cost of those tests over millions and millions of airbag inflators, that comes down to be a very small number, right? So ARC clearly made the choice to build junk. Takata clearly made the choice to build junk because when you do this qualification testing for the airbag inflators, it includes environments, it includes age, it includes humidity, temperature, all of the things that that could impact the life of the propellant or the ability of the EED or the airbag inflator to do its job as intended at the end of life. Okay, so that's the heart of this. Um, people's lives, in my mind, in my opinion, the people's lives are at least as important as whether or not a satellite's going to deploy properly. Uh, not as showy. Again, this gets back into the fundamental problem of highway safety, which is that if you took all the people who are being harmed by these and put them into one event, nobody would ever allow the event to be repeated. But right. because they're diffuse and they're spread out around the country, <clears throat> each one occurs on page six of the local newspaper, the industry can get away with producing hazardous junk. So that's my take on it. Uh Five times the testing that's currently being done by ARC apparently is what would be needed to produce a sufficiently or even customarily safe electro-explosive device, a.k.a. airbag inflator, compared to what ARC is doing now. Okay, so, uh, you know, from what you guys have educated me on this show is... uh there doesn't seem to be a lot of regulations around air bags, how they're manufactured, have the propellants used. Um, we've learned from guests that they're not designed with uh, petite-sized males or women in mind. Uh, there, uh, There's no... Uh, it just seems still almost like the wild, wild west. Now, am I better off just disabling my airbag? 
I would say no. I mean, no. I mean, if the odds are, look, I don't think you have the ability to disable your airbag in 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 your car anyway. But oh, I got pliers. <laughs> that's definitely a no. Um, okay. No, you don't. But 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 here's the even using ARC's numbers. Ninety five percent of the time, the airbag deploys. It's going to save you from grievous injury or death. Now, okay, so airbags are good. It's just the regulations around them are non-existent or poor. I believe that's correct. Yes, and and again, NHTSA doesn't have a regulation, but if they just spend five minutes on the internet, they can easily find the regulations that are applicable to these uh, airbag inflators, and they could just say, "Let's do it." The military's got them. Commercial businesses have them. They've all got basically the same spec. The only organization I'm aware of that requires EEDs without a specification is NHTSA. Why is NHTSA such an outlier? It's a mystery to me. Well, I, I mean, I would suggest they're an outlier because that's what the auto industry has been lobbying for for the last 50 years is less money so that NHTSA has less expertise in these areas. And, you know, the, the auto industry is continually tried to dumb down agency rulemakings to prevent exactly this sort of thing. You know, anything that allows them to build, you know, the 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 cheapest potentially working product and get it out there in a vehicle is, is going to be what they shoot for. Well, it seems like they've won. So let's talk more fun airbag news. Unfortunately, I don't have the links in front of me. We'll put them into the podcast description. So Volvo, they have airbags that will deploy on the outside of the vehicle to protect pedestrians. Is that right? They have one model right now where it looks like an airbag curtain will come down over the windshield. So if the pedestrians accidentally hit, their head's not being crashed through the windshield, causing grievous harm, but instead they get to bounce off of that and then bounce onto hard asphalt. Why don't we make the roads out of airbags? <laughs> I've seen uh, at least one article that said that Subaru has the same available in Japan, not yet in the U.S. And the United States has been looking at the issue for a while. Just nothing's been done on it. There have been... Um, you know, preliminary agency looks at rulemaking to make not only, you know, cars crash worthy for the people that are inside, but also for the people outside. And, you know, most of this has just simply been thrown to the side because over the same time period, Americans have continued to buy, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger vehicles that make it harder and harder to protect pedestrians because they're colliding with pedestrians at, you know, weaker points of the body, at head height, neck height, chest height. Um, there aren't sufficient protections for, you know, pedestrians who are hit and then hit other hard surfaces of the car. In addition to the bumper rolling up the windshield, that's one of the uh, things that that I think Volvo has is the the, the bonnet uh, protection on the hood. So that's that's something that Europe has been far advanced uh, when compared to the United States is is actually getting cars on the road that that protect protect pedestrians to some extent in the event of a crash do the european or asian countries have any regulations around electro explosive devices uh, well i don't know the answer to that okay well we'll wait here you know you get your google on 
Okay, we'll just continue with the show instead. Another fun airbag we saw was it was something you wear around your neck and it's for bicyclists and it will sense if you're in a crash and will inflate around your neck to protect your head, um, which I thought was neat. But in the images you can see in the link we're providing, uh, the person on the bicycle lands right on their butt and doesn't land anywhere on their head. Uh, so I thought it was a silly little illustration, but also, you know, a helmet. Wouldn't a helmet do the same thing? Is this just a cool, funny-looking thing? Well, the helmet would transmit much more shock than the airbag around your head. So the helmet's a good start, but a lot of people still suffer head injuries and bicycle accidents. Okay. And there's a lot of, you know, vanity in that, I guess, too. You know, it functions somewhat as a helmet, but it's a helmet that pops out when you're in a bike crash yes um, it's you know it's it, instead of you know driving around your bike wrapped in a bubble you have an insta bubble that pops out when you're going to be in a crash but at, at that point you you know you're relying on the technology inside of that to deploy it otherwise you're just the usual sack of skin and bones oh speaking of the usual sack of skin and bones i just watched a tom cruise movie and he's riding around on his motorcycle no helmet multiple scenes driving really fast no helmet Tom Cruise, do better. Come on. The Thetans will protect him. <laughs> You're an SP, Michael. Uh, hey, speaking of pedestrian safety, there was a fun article in Fast Company about a right on red ban. This is not some anti-communist screed, um, but this is about uh, not allowing people to make right-hand turns on a red light. And it's interesting because it talks about the history of why this started, um, why drivers were allowed to turn right at a red light, right at a right. Yeah, that's right. Um, yep. From the Fast Company article. Uh, but the 1970s oil crisis prompted the federal government to insist that states change their traffic laws, hoping that right on red would reduce gas consumed while cars idle at traffic lights. In 1975, the feds demanded that states default to uh, right on red or forfeit energy funding. By 1980, the last holdout, Massachusetts, home of Fred Perkins, had complied. The federal rule is still on the books, by the way. Now, uh, the article goes on to say there's, it's unclear if this did anything for gas consumption. Yeah. Uh, I live in New York City where right on red is not allowed at all, yet I see people constantly do it. Uh, and the big thing they're talking about is it's uh, a lot of it is pedestrian safety because you're going to make that right on red. You're not looking to the right where you're turning. You're just looking at the traffic on the left. Oh, I'm good. And then, bam, riding right over the person uh, who has the audacity to walk in a city designed by Robert Moses, who hated people walking, among a bunch of other things that he hated. You know, uh, I was fascinated by the history here, too. I always assumed right on red was just a, a matter of, you know, consumers and drivers demanding the ability to turn right on red when you're sitting at a light and no one is coming from one direction. And, you know, yeah. it just seems more efficient. It seems like a better way to move traffic. Um, but yes, I mean, I, you know, I, I have learned over time and I think everyone has to to be particularly careful in those situations of pedestrians it's a similar situation to when you're turning left and crossing a couple of lanes of traffic, you're watching the traffic in front of you and you're not always watching that crosswalk. And a lot of pedestrian incidents happen in those situations as well, because you start to make a turn when you get a gap and boom, there's a pedestrian that pops up. So um, it was, you know, it's DC just banned uh, right turns on red. Um, 
I don't think all the signage has gone up yet, but um, it's, you know, it's interesting. It's also really interesting if you read the article, how the federal government ends up bribing states into following its will on things like this. Um, you know, and and what they choose, when and where they choose to do that. You know, there's there's a lot of most people don't know this, but you know, the vast majority of NHTSA funding doesn't go into the, some of the things we'd really like it to go into, like you know, hiring software engineers and developing the agency's expertise. It goes into grants to states to to traffic enforcement and to you know, drunk driving, seatbelt campaigns, and and just a lot of other things and those grants can also be used in a way that essentially you know says hey if you pass this law that we want you to we'll give you a bunch of money but if you don't we won't um so it's you know it's it's in some ways legalized bribery to get states to do some things that 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 the government wants to and i didn't realize that it had been used to institute rights on red um also makes me wonder you know have you ever hit a situation where you can take a left on red no. Yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. So you, you two suffer from being young. So I'm going to clarify this <laughs> yeah. for you a little bit. I've had a couple um, of those spots here, one here, and one in Meridian, Mississippi, <laughs> and that's the um, only ones I've ever run into. I ran into it in, in Denver. Double, double, double turn. Uh, the sign said no double turn on red, or no double left turn on red, and I couldn't figure it out I, I, but i got through without a ticket anyway oh, so this, Fred, be, before you educate us for being young i have to point out you said both of us suffer from being young and then michael ignored exactly what you're saying like the tiktok generation he is and told you his story <laughs> sorry continue that's okay, okay I'm the tiktok generation <laughs> he'll remember this years from now but anyway uh, but when I was a kid, we used to call them California red lights because California was the only state that allowed a right turn on a red. And uh, then the oil embargo came along. I think it was 1972, 73, something like that. And the price of gas shot up. So some genius said, well, you know, it's good for California, so let's do it for the whole country. But the context is important because California at that time was well-known uh, I think still is, but it was well known for handing out, liberally handing out tickets to people who violated the crosswalk laws. And um, so in California at the time, and I suspect still now, you can be very confident that once you put a foot down in the crosswalk, that car is going to stop for you, right? Because that's the law, unlike a lot of the eastern states where, you know, it's it's a sport. Um <laughs> So both of those things were true in California, that the right turn on red after checking and carefully monitoring the crosswalks was allowed. But the context was that people really did respect the crosswalks. And so it, it was not as unsafe as it has apparently become in a lot of other cities. So I just wanted to give you that context. And that was, that was um, around the same time as Woodstock, so I know you guys. <laughs> just haven't been there I, Woodstock's my favorite character from the Peanuts cartoon I know exactly what you're talking about he's a good guy <laughs> he is. hey who, you know who else is a good guy you listener for going to autosafety.org and clicking on that donate button ah I can feel the love right now Speaking of the love, we got this link in from a listener named Peter. Uh, he sent us an article about Connecticut adding drunk driving sensors to cars. Uh, 
The Connecticut Department of Transportation on Friday, this is a week ago, announced it's launching a pilot program to equip vehicles with sensors that can detect drunk driving by testing the air. And it's starting with installing them in department-owned vehicles, satellites not needed. Uh, and it's interesting. The article talks about that it can that it that it claims that they can figure out if the the drunk air all molecules is coming from the driver or from the passenger. Right. I I that would be fascinating. Like I love the idea of this. I think this is great because if you've ever driven on the road and you always see, oh my god, stay away from that car because they're swerving all over the place. They're either texting, they're a Tesla driver, or uh, they're drunk. Either way, you got to stay away from them. Uh, but uh, it's fascinating. Like uh, this, I think Michael, you've mentioned something like this before. Like you'd love this as part of your fantasy, right? Right. I mean, this is something that when we, you know, I think Fred and I have probably both seen this at the the auto show when we go in in, in DC. Um, they have a booth set up and they're they're demonstrating this technology. It's called Dads, uh, and what it does essentially is it instead of requiring the driver to blow into a tube to determine if they're drinking, they just it just monitors the air. It's passive. There's nothing that the um, driver has to do to make sure the vehicle starts, other than not drink. Um, and they seem to be working great. And this is one of those situations where there's a product or a safety measure that's been created that most owners and people who drive cars out there, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll sense some resistance in them to the technology. It's kind of like speeding technology. Um, you know, drivers don't want to be told how fast they can go on their cars. And some drivers don't want to be told when or where they're going to be able to drive, even if they've been drinking. I think we all know people that drive drunk frequently. Um, and in, when you when you when you can't get something into directly into law as a state, it's always nice to have you know government employees who you can test this stuff out on in a way. Now, what so what they're doing is essentially putting it in all the government vehicles. We've seen a similar movement. I think it's in New York City putting the the um, speed devices into government vehicles there. So. When it when the populace won't accept it, let's you know at least put it in our government vehicles. And I think what this ultimately is going to do, it's going to reduce their exposure to liability. It's going to reduce you know the number of state employees who are driving drunk because their car won't start. Um, in New York, it's going to reduce the number of city employees that are that are able are able to speed on the roads in city vehicles. So, you know, for an investment of, and I think this technology is under $200 at this point, maybe even lower. I I'm, I haven't heard a number in a few years, but last I heard dad's technology is, you know, it's not super expensive. It's far cheaper than an, inter, than an interlock device that you'll see problem uh, drunk drivers have to put on their vehicles. So, and it's hopefully something that can be put into every vehicle um, as part of the, the infrastructure act. A couple of years ago, there was provision directing that's uh, to issue rulemakings in this area. So we're hoping that, you know, dads or, you know, any other system that can prevent this problem, even if it's a satellite shooting beams from space, <laughs> um, we hope that can work uh, and, and, and come into play because you're talking about saving thousands of lives per year. I mean, drunk driving, even though it's, it, it is lower than it has been in the past Drunk driving is still a huge killer of Americans and, you know, worldwide as well. Okay. So this technology works. It, um, it prevents the car from starting by 
sniffing the air, right? So instead, you know, I've got the car started. I'm sober. I'm driving down the highway. Then I crack open a sixer. Is it going to turn the car off on me? That's what well, I don't know if your breath, if you cracked open a sixer, would you know that's enough to 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 trigger it. You know, well, you I'm going to drink. Actually, you I probably mean, have to drink most of the sixer and well, keep that's driving. that's the goal because I get thirsty and you know I gotta you know I gotta relax during the day. And I'm sure you know there are so many different things they're having. I mean, when you develop technology like this, what you're really having to think about are all the different ways that humans are going to try to figure out to get around it and get that car moving, um, which could be a lot of things: hanging your head out the window, not breathing. <laughs> <You know? laughs> there are many ways to get around the, the the system that have to be thought about it and built into the design of it, and you know that's that's you know part of the intriguing part of this technology you know is is seeing how it works and, it, and if it works and the only way to find out is to get it out on the road and in this case that's something that connecticut's taking a step to do so we obviously support what they're doing i i love this idea especially if i could have this retrofitted into my car and then my insurance rates would lower oh that would I, be nice i i think if insure i think that's how this would move forward as insurance companies they do the hey if you we do driver monitoring we'll lower your rates hey if we see if you're drunk or not we'll lower your rate that would be great yeah i think that's a great idea and i think that that's something that a lot of people would accept you know i certainly would put that in my vehicle right now and i'd love to have lower interest rates because i have a 20 year old daughter well there you go um and and speaking of uh problems with uh with with driving drunk i think the next concern we have is what if you're driving and a rat jumps out of your <laughs> from underneath your hood that oh, that'll, that'll never happen well we've got good video of it uh happening is uh we got a video on cnn this is scary as can be new york city driver uh coming down the road and you know they're out in the country and all of a sudden rat crawls out from underneath their the, the hood of their car scary as can be this is just funny and entertaining and thankfully no one was hurt not even the rat amazingly enough it it just moved up to the lives in the catskills out of brooklyn um you know just like a lot of pandemic moves uh also related to that we're gonna have a link on a, a uh netflix documentary about rats driving cars basically researchers training rats to drive i i don't know why we're encouraging this behavior um, well it's a that's a, there was a study at the university of richmond where they're they're basically training rats to control little vehicles to to achieve treats i thought it was pretty interesting um but the usually when we talk about rats it's because they're eating cables and vehicles and causing safety problems in this case it just seemed to be a uh interesting story definitely an interesting story uh don't drive drunk don't drive and check your car for rats i guess i don't know what's the takeaway I don't know. It was a BMW. A lot of people like BMWs, but the rat had eaten right through the grate that's between the uh, the hood and the windshield, and so it was able to make an escape through that uh, through that knob opening as it was hurtling down the highway. You know, I was putting all this together. Maybe, maybe Waymo and Cruz are looking to use rats as safety drivers. That would solve some of their uh, economic problems and safety problems as well. What, what do you think? I think that's an excellent segue to mention Waymo. 
because we don't have anything this week and this week and what cruise crashes into uh but we've got waymo is uh expanding their service in san francisco they're uh they're opening up the robo taxi service to tens of thousands of people across all 47 square miles of san francisco uh They've spent at least over a they've spent over a billion dollars working on these vehicles, and now they're like, "Hey, uh, let's try and make some of that money back." Uh, I think it's a stretch, um, but you know, as we've said before, Waymo has been slightly better, more open with its data than their competitors. Um, but this is, uh, is interesting because this article in The Verge, scaling responsibility is the watchword because Waymo has faced significant opposition, not just from residents, but also city officials and law enforcement. The city's transit agency and fire and police departments have all logged complaints about robo-taxis in general and called on the state to delay their rollout. Um, but as we've learned, the Public Utility Commissions of California just says, nanny nanny, boo boo, tough doo doo. Uh, and this is yeah, I mean, I'm sure Waymo, you know, in the past, what, six months, eight months, we, you know, we've begun to hear a whole lot more about GM Cruise. They've been, you know, putting stupid advertisements in papers across <laughs> the country, touting how horrible humans are and lots of other nonsense. In addition to some a lot of lobbying expenditures trying to get their bills passed in different states and even in the, in at the federal level um and waymo is you know doing more of the things that we like to see they're putting out better safety reports you know they're not going down the path of nonsense that that gm cruise has has apparently set off on you know mimicking elon musk and some of the other stuff that seems to be going on there and they're, you know, they're, but the problem is that because GM Cruise is also operating in San Francisco and also operating in some of these areas, people aren't, you know, distinguishing between Cruise and Waymo so much. They see, you know, the autonomous vehicle and assume that, you know, Waymo is causing the same problems as Cruise. There are some, you know, I'm sure they do, Waymo vehicles do enter an existential crisis and that type of thing, like we've seen with Cruise vehicles, but frankly as someone who you know is constantly reading articles about this whenever they pop up waymo pops up a lot less in these situations than crews so um in some ways you know they probably should be expanding faster than crews hmm. the truth comes out michael loves autonomous vehicles whether or not a rat is driving them thoughts fred i think waymo is making a good faith effort to make this stuff work before they roll it out in public. I don't think it's as market-driven as uh, the GM Cruise offering is. Uh, and I don't have any hard data to back that up, but just from talking with people in the industry and observing what's going on, there's just seems to be a lot less bullshit coming out of Waymo and a lot more science coming out of Waymo. Um, I don't know, it's hard to quantify that, but that's that's kind of my impression. Michael, what do you think? I, I just I, I think that Waymo has done a much better job planning and you know they've relied more on actually putting the product out there and making sure it works right than PR. Um 
which has, you know, when you do a lot of PR and you start saying things about your vehicles that are inflated, inevitably they're going to do something dumb and you're going to look silly. And that's, that seems like that's happened over and over with Cruz. Whereas Waymo is, um, you know, kind of flown under the radar in many respects. They've, they've, I guess they've gotten a little cover from Cruz, but, you know, I still think it, the overall perception that that people have is going to be based on the totality, you know, not just what Waymo is doing, but also what all these other autonomous vehicle companies is doing. And so, you know, it's that's that's why it's important that, you know, probably, you know, that, that it's similar to, I guess, Tesla and the rest of the automotive market. You know, Tesla is promising a lot of things and talking about robo taxes and all this and pushing these limits but at the same time you know that could damage consumer confidence in the ability of these vehicles to actually do what they're saying they're going to do um in many ways crews might be doing the same thing you know to the market in san francisco and to other markets where they lose the the confidence of the locals they lose confidence of potential riders and then that loss of confidence also impacts the other folks in the sector like waymo so that's still obviously got a long way to go to play out but um you know right now if if i was investing in one of those two companies i would probably have to go with waymo because cruise scares me that's the way they've rolled <laughs> it out the way they've done things kind of their they're very brash, bold. They seem to have way too much confidence in technology that's not there yet. And and the way it's advertised suggests that even they don't fully have a grasp on what they're doing. Well, we also note that Waymo has pulled out of the self-driving heavy truck business that for whatever reasons, and we don't know what those reasons are. Uh, they've taken a hard look at that and decided to sacrifice their prior investment in that. So, optimistically hoping that that's because the safety analysis has said they just can't make it work i'm i'm uh, optimistic that <laughs> before too long we'll see that same judgment made about the self-driving uh passenger vehicles we'll see but listeners i'd like to please note that michael brooks is not an investment advisor so any uh, investment <laughs> advice you get from him i'd please ignore it and instead donate your money with a tax-free deduction to the Center for Auto Safety. Uh, hey, what do you guys think about IKEA flat pack type furniture? You guys fans? Love it. Wait, one it. love it, one no. I agree. I hate it. I, I it's the I'm not it a violent person. It just falls person. apart. You know, I'm I'm rough on things. It falls. Yeah. It's yeah. It's always been a mess for me. I'm not not a fan. My my years ago, my wife said, "Oh, I look. I bought you a dresser, and I put it together. I followed the little cartoon instructions. Their instructions were wrong, and I I took a hammer to it." And, uh, well, yeah. I've, I read somewhere that 90% of all children conceived in Europe have been conceived on IKEA beds. So they must be doing something right. Huh. Interesting. Besides the meatballs. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure what websites you two hang out on, but there's a Swedish company that's making flat pack cars. Uh, this is from CNN. Uh, this company, Lovely O. Uh, creates this small little boxy car, which it looks kind of neat. It's a light urban vehicle. It is a micro car, uh, weighs 770 pounds. Um, and it's, uh, they're not for you to take home as a consumer and get that little wrench and have that cartoon guy install it. It's for some manufacturer to build it for you because that's required. But the thing, the problem is these micro cars, uh, they, 
they they don't have to follow federal safety guidelines. They don't have to wait. Like what? What's the deal here? No, they they manufacture them almost kind of in a um, like this base package, and then if you want to own one in the United States, you have to find a way to have that certified to federal motor vehicle safety standards. By the looks of it, it would require adding a lot of things to the to to what they've got there, and it's like probably something that would have to be yeah, it's something that would have to be taken on by a final stage manufacturer um, to make sure that it's certified in the United States. So the it's you know it looks great. I I, I like the idea of a mini car. I don't know if I would look that great in one, but I, I do <laughs> like I like the idea of getting you know. 40 mile round trip to work and back in something that uses the least energy possible and, you know, doesn't clog up the roads. And, you know, I, I love that idea, but then getting into it and being surrounded by, you know, massive mommy SUVs and pickup trucks and other things makes me wonder, you know, the, the CEO in the article when they went over the crashworthiness of the vehicles made it seem as though, Oh yeah, you know, we just put some foam in between on each side of the driver. And so we're good in crashes, which is a, a very much an oversimplification of what would happen. You know, if you were pinned in between a couple of large vehicles, that's overly optimistic. So, you know, once again, as we talk about with heavy uh, electric vehicles, heavy batteries, you know, physics, is uh, and weight is the uh, reigning world champion, and it's really hard to mitigate the effects of weight in crashes. And many cars, you know, almost no matter what you build them out of, are going to be less able to handle the forces of a crash than larger vehicles. So I, I think- don't think a crank operated airbag inflator is the way to go myself. <laughs> So I want to put a challenge out here to listeners. The next uh, listener to donate $1,000, we will arrange it that you get to sit with Michael Brooks inside of a mini car. Somehow we will make this happen. You can bring four more of your friends and you'll live out your circus clown fantasy. It will be amazing. Okay, Michael, you agree to this? Um, uh, Tentatively. (laughs) (laughs) Well, tentatively, we will do this. There you go. Sometime in the next five decades. You know, you're creating a Washington clown car, and I'm not sure that that's the way to go, given the current leadership. We've already got a couple of clown cars in Washington. (laughs) All right. Getting a little too political. Um, These things are funny. The article, the the CEO of this company mentions, oh, it's kind of like uh, F1 cars and whatnot, ignoring the fact that F1 car drivers are put inside uh, carbon fiber uh, monocoque that they really crash test. And, you know, these guys go 200 miles per hour into stationary barriers and they walk away fine i mean it's a bit of an exaggeration but anyway how's this for a bit of an exaggeration recall roundup time strap in time for the recall roundup it's an exaggeration because there's only one this week come on i saw you shaking your head at me michael that's there's only one this week and it's um you know there's not, you know, the good news for everyone with rear view cameras in their cars. This is the first week in what, um, two months or so that we haven't seen a rear view camera recall. Yeah. This is, uh, we have from a manufacturer I've never heard of called Rev Recreation Group 2023 to 2024 Fleetwood Fortis. Uh, this is the external griddle. Wait. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, sorry. The exterior griddle may be stowed while connected to the liquid petroleum gas. Uh, the exterior griddle may be stowed while in use, increasing the risk of fire. Uh, I, I'm laughing because I did not expect uh, a car to have a, an exterior griddle, but now I understand what kind of vehicle this is. An awesome one. One you can yes. make pancakes while driving. Now you understood why I snuck that one in there this week. There were a lot of other, you know, 10 other recalls we could have looked at, but the, the exterior griddle really kind of captures what I want in a car. Oh, man. I, I want to because, you know, I'm driving, but the things, my pancakes will just get cold because I'm doing 50 down the road. I've got my exterior griddle and I'm flipping well, them Anthony, out there. you clearly haven't read the recall. You're oh. supposed to stow it before well, you drive. <laughs> that's the problem is it can still be connected to the gas. Uh, no, just think of how much fuel this could save if people could eat their breakfast, you know, cook their breakfast while they're driving to work instead of having to do it serially. I think there's a, you know, I think this is be a wonderful innovation for increasing efficiency and reducing fuel consumption. And, and increasing driver distraction with oh, Sure. Yeah. Well, that, of course, but, you know, it's only your left hand. You don't use the left hand for that much when you're driving. <laughs> No, this is the perfect argument for robo taxis right now. I want Denny's to make a robo taxi. Because then I just sit in the back, have moons over my hammy. You know, it would be great. That's the room. Look, Denny's has got to make this IHOP, not, you know, Google and General Motors. Like, come on. I'm going yeah. for Piggly Wiggly, though. Every ah, time. Piggly Wiggly. And with that, uh, we'll do a couple investigations real quick. Uh, there is an investigation into Volkswagen, uh, investigating 184,000 plus vehicles. The Office of Defects Investigation has received 59 complaints, one early warning report of death and injury. Ooh, um, several field reports alleging inadvertent activation of the front assist automatic emergency braking system in 2018 to 2019 Volkswagen Atlas vehicles. So it seems the um, automatic emergency braking comes on unexpectedly. Yeah, it looks like they the, I don't believe they figured it out, but it looks like the system activates when there's no obstruction in the vehicle's path. What this is what we've called phantom braking, you might hear other names right. for it, but essentially the autumn and it's something that NHTSA is currently supposedly covering in their rulemaking. Um, we're going to see how that develops to prevent this type of thing. Um, but essentially what you're having is vehicles. This has been going on for many years now. There have been to recalls with Toyota and Nissan. There's an investigation with Honda right now. You know, we're in the first or second grade when it comes to automatic emergency braking, as we've talked about endlessly on this podcast. And there's a lot of growing up to do. And right now these systems aren't always making sure that there's actually something in your way when they're all of a sudden bringing your vehicle to a stop. This is the first time I've heard the phrase, what is it? Sudden vehicle deceleration. Usually we're talking about sudden unintended acceleration, but in this case, apparently there's, you know, they've discovered complaints in their early warning records um, from five minor injuries in five minor injuries from, you know, basically slowing down way too quick or far more quickly than the, driver expects because you know normally when you brake you're prepared to brake and in these cases you know the car is just braking fu functionally braking independently of any object on the road or any input from the driver and so you're not you're not even expecting the vehicle to brake so i could see how you know that 
could lead to, to you know situations where a driver or passengers are injured um and this is a huge concern with automatic emergency braking this is probably you know one of the most important things that they get right going forward because if you have vehicles braking for no reason then consumers aren't going to want to use this technology they're going to turn it off if that's allowed in their vehicle and you know similar to some of the other technological things you know if it's not working right when we introduce it to the public they're not going to use it and we're going to lose the safety benefits hmm. okay get these things right people i like the automatic emergency braking it just needs to be better um ford bronco uh they're investigating an eco boost loss of power um so that's I'm just going to run through these real quick. That's 708,000 vehicles that they're looking into. Nothing again, these investigations, nothing for you to see here just yet. Uh, but they're looking to see, hey, what's going on here? Uh, yeah, they've got a lot of complaints. And I mean, they think they've gotten, what is it, 1,200, it looks like? No, 861 complaints on these vehicles, right. which is pretty significant number when we're talking about problems. And essentially what's happening is they're, um stalling in the middle of the in, in the middle of the road and they're unable to restart and it's a catastrophic engine failure and a lot of consumers have complained about it and so we're certainly keeping a close eye on this one because it looks like something that is going to result in a rather large recall right ecoboost ecoboost by the way is what everybody else calls a turbocharger so it's uh a turbocharger is a turbine that runs on the force of the exhaust gases, and uh, those exhaust gases turn the turbine, of course, which in turn turns a compressor, which crams more air into the engine. So it's a sophisticated system, and when it works, it improves the efficiency of the cars, but don't want people to be confused by that. Uh, the brand name EcoBoost, just a turbocharger. Okay, because right. EcoBoost sounds like, hey, I press this and it's going to plant trees for me or something. And that's yeah, not at all what it's doing. Like, yeah. Yeah. Mm, marketing lying sons of. Uh, the last one we have is General Motors, Bluebird Corporation, Dahmer Trucks, Thomas Built Buses. Uh, this is uh, 2,000 vehicles are looking at only one complaint. This is uh, one complaint alleging five transmission failures, to, leading to a loss of motive power across the fleet. Um, oh, wait, so this is just one complaint that had five. So this is one bus that had five transmission failures. It's, you know, these, I, I, I only see one complaint period. Um, but I think the concern here is that these cutaway vehicles are used for basically two things, you know, transporting students to school or as ambulances. Um, and so maybe there's a heightened concern, uh, on the part of the agency, because these are, you know, vehicles that are transporting um, precious cargo. Um, there also are only, I believe, about 2000 vehicles here. Right. So, you know, the, the one failure in 2000 vehicles here is actually, you know, a greater number of failures on a percentage basis than we see in the ARC airbags we were just talking about. So, um that's, Ooh, that that's, math lesson helps. that's a concern. All right. Hey, with that, listeners, um, what kind of uh, pancakes do you like to have while you're driving down the road at 50 miles per hour, cracking open a six-pack of beer? 
and blueberry. uh <laughs> blueberry okay great fred uh, I don't know, but I did want to take a moment to just correct something that I said last week. Last week, uh, we were talking about the cruise vehicle that had stopped on top of a woman's leg after a, a right. real accident in San Francisco. And I said uh, at the time, essentially, well, any jackass knows that what you need to do is move the car off of the woman's leg. And apparently, I'm the jackass because uh, more sophisticated analysis says sometimes, or usually yes, but sometimes no. So it's yeah. really situation dependent. And uh, I apologize for that misspeak last week. Well, I don't know if you necessarily misspoke because I don't think you're the jackass in this. Because I did the research into this, and the UK is the only place I can find like some emergency response. Like, what do you do in this situation? They said if you're compressing someone's leg in that situation for less than 15 minutes get that weight off of their leg immediately right. longer than 15 minutes don't move it wait for professionals to show up well, the so, concern here is like if a, if a victim has clothing or something trapped in the axle of the vehicle and they're also right. being compressed then moving the vehicle could could injure them or kill them um so it's best and most emergency Everything I could find on the subject when I was looking into it suggests that, you know, they're using airbags or the jaws of life or some other mechanism to lift vehicles right off up. of victims and, and it, it rarely moving them. All right. So, but in uh, any case, do not try this at home and rely on the experts to safely extricate the person from under the vehicle, I think is a message. Yeah, I also want to jump into this. So let's recap for listeners real quick on the GM cruise running over the woman's leg situation. This was uh, a couple weeks ago in San Francisco. There's a robo taxi at a traffic light and there's a human driver at the traffic light. Pedestrians walking through. The cars have a green light and the uh, pedestrian driven car hits the pedestrian. Uh, sorry, the human driven car hits the pedestrian, bounces, gets under stuck underneath the robo taxi. The robo taxi immediately stops. Um, and uh, there's a lot of controversy around, oh, how, you know, the robo taxi did this, how long to respond. I think one thing we didn't mention and no one mentioned is if there was a human inside that robo taxi, if there was a driver there, they possibly could have noticed that, hey, there's a jackass in the car next to me. They're texting, they're partying, they're drinking, whatnot. I'm not going to gun it at this light. I'm not going to move ahead forward. I can see there's a pedestrian walking here and stop because we've all been right. in situations you're at an intersection you go oh this bozo in the next lane i'm gonna let them go ahead i'm gonna sit here and wait um hey just another vote for humans i know i'm old-fashioned no no argument that's exactly right but i do want to state that i like being a designated jackass because if the bar <laughs> if the bar of expectations for me is really low then everybody's going to be happily surprised at my performance so Plus, you have a chance to be president one day. Well, there you go. There you go. Okay, to recap, folks, uh, Michael chooses blueberry pancakes. Fred chooses jackass pancakes. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, see you again next week. Thanks for donating. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.